Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Ariel Ramshandani. Ariel is a freelance writer and the host of Cadence 13 podcast, No Place Like Home, an investigative podcast about the case of the stolen ruby red slippers. Her stories have appeared in Mother Jones, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Pacific Standard, Wired, The Economist, and The Wall Street Journal magazine, among other publications. Let's hear what she has to say about the case of the stolen ruby red slippers. Hi, Ariel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah, of course. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to start off by uh, seeing if you could give us a little backstory on how Judy Garland got her start. Uh, What was her life like in Grand Rapids as a child? And when did her family decide to move to Hollywood? Okay, so she grew up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which is a really small town. At that point, it was a really small town, um, sort of hard to get to, hours from Duluth um, by a horse and carriage and or early automobile. Um, and she grew up sort of baby, baby gum in this family, the baby of the family, um, and had a very sort of like Midwestern normal childhood. You know, they talk about like going downstairs during the tornadoes, having having really terrible ear infections in the winter, skating, um, and something she described as the happiest time in her life. Um, But she was always a performer. Um, She was always the one in the family who had sort of the biggest voice um, and wanted to be on stage the most. And her parents ran a theater, sort of old timey theater where they would play piano and show silent movies. Um, and Judy baby gum at that point would go on stage and sing and like bring down the house, um, even though she was tiny and tiny. Um, and so 
Then she went to Hollywood when she was really pretty young, sort of like too young, right? And fell very young into these huge, into stardom, you know, and then sort of everything that followed, this sort of like a lot of drugs, they put her on a lot of drugs, they worked her all the time. At this point, there were obviously no laws about how long children could work or, or what. The studio basically just like owned her. But that was her start. You know, it was a sort of like big voice and desire to be on screen. And she had performed, she performed with her sisters um, for many years and then sort of in the end became the sort of solo act. So what was her experience like filming The Wizard of Oz? Well, I think it was, I mean, I think it's as if, you know, when you watch it, I think it sort of like still holds up effects wise, right? And it feels like this huge, big, amazing picture. And I think in some ways working on it was like that, you know, there were so many people and everything was changing all the time. It was like all new scripts. Are the slippers going to be silver? Are they going to be this? Is, you know, a billion people in as munchkins, we're going to do this effect and that effect. Like, we don't care if anyone gets hurt. You know, the famous story of like, Margaret Hamilton getting actually burned on set because um, they were really trying trying a lot of things. Um, and I think for her, it was like this big experience of being on this huge movie set, making movie magic, um, working round the clock um, all the time. Um, and yeah, just being really, um, I think it was probably very overwhelming for her in some ways. Um, <laughs> to be doing that right like but it also was an experience where she had made a lot of really good friends and you know people like forever she stayed in touch with the people she worked with on the Wizard of Oz um but yeah it must have been just like bananas if you <laughs> think about it um yeah just like crazy so let's talk about the shoes can you tell okay. us about the construction of the ruby red slippers yeah, so they, it was a pair of shoes that was based on a pump that was like in circulation at the time. And that's the whole thing with like, you know, now they're so, so valuable. But at the time, the original pump was like something that anyone would wear, not very valuable, just like a plain satin shoe. Um, and they had this idea of it being maybe they'll be silver and that'll be, you know, there's all this like mythology from the original book that um, The Wizard of Oz is based on about silver and gold and the gold standard and all these sort of like things that now feel very, maybe not so relevant to like, <laughs> uh, um, sort of like thematically. Um, and they, and then they changed them to red because the wizard of Oz is one of the first movies in technicolor. Um, and so they were thinking about what would look amazing, right? Like what would look amazing with the yellow brick road and just during the dance sequences and everything. Um, and they had, um, MGM at the time, all the studios at the time had crazy prop and crafts, you know, sort of like villages of people making costumes, making props, making set pieces. Um, and they had people who would hand, they hand sewed all of the sequins on, all of the beads, all of everything. And you could see, I mean, one way they know authentic slippers is the repairs because there were people also coming in constantly and one slipper would get damaged during a dance sequence and they would come and repair it, they would have someone right there to kind of like fix it up um, perfectly. Um, and then we don't know how many pairs were in the movie, right? Um, because they had so many, you know, they had pairs that she definitely wore to dance in. They had pairs that definitely her stand-in wore when she was, you know, it's like she had to, this is also when she was in school, she would have tutoring in her trailer um, or where like, you know, the there's a picture of her wearing fuzzy slippers, um, sort of like learning, learning for a take or something um yeah and there were shoes that were for the close-ups and there were shoes for all sorts of things so we just have no idea how many they made um and how many different pairs existed when they sort of first stitched those those original shoes so how successful was the film when it debuted uh, did anyone foresee it becoming such a cultural icon it was at the beginning, it was successful. It was not sort of the way that we think about it now. Um, one thing that was sort of amazing about it was this technicolor. You know, there's when, when this idea of 
in the movie, she goes from black and white to, to Technicolor. And there was, you know, when, when audiences first saw this and they saw her go, you know, she opens that door, they would stand up and clap. Like it was so sort of moving and magical. So it did have like the pull from the beginning, but it didn't really take off until it went into TV syndication. Um, it became something where it was shown on the holidays, on Christmas and Thanksgiving, um, when TV really kind of like became a thing, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then it became a movie that that was so popular um, and that people really started watching and that and had the sort of reach that we think about now. So the beginning, there wasn't, I think, a sense that this was like MGM's blockbuster huge thing. It came out in a year where there were a few other, it was like one of the first movies for children um, and came out in a year where they were starting to make movies for children. It was also at a time where they were just making huge, expensive, amazing movies. They were making like Ben-Hur. They were, they were making all these giant pictures. Um, and so it kind of like fit in. And then as time went on and as it became this like in your home holiday, cozy Americana thing, um, it sort of took on the life that we think of it as having now. So how do the shoes, along with many other Wizard of Oz film memorabilia, end up in boxes in a warehouse? And how are they finally uncovered? So, I mean, this is what was really interesting and sort of is sort of like feels it's a very American part of the story, right? It's like you have the studio system. They are spending gobs of money. They are making, they're like inventing movie magic. Um, and there's all this stuff that they're producing, millions of shoes and like, you know, French, beautiful furniture, all the stuff for every picture that's ever and existing. But then they are losing a lot of money um, in the 50s. Like they're, they're starting to lose money, um, 50s, 60s, you know, through that time period. Um, and they can't also work their actors as hard as they had been working. They can't do what they were doing to them. The actors are more expensive. Like things are really changing in Hollywood and they start going bankrupt. Um, and then when that starts happening, it's like, what do they have of value? They have the land, right? They, they often had really valuable pieces of land in LA and in Hollywood, um, and that's like, fine, you can sort of sell whatever you have, but like, you also have all this stuff. Um, and they didn't know what to do with it. It was just basically to them trash, right? Like they couldn't give it away fast enough. Um, and I think no one really saw at that point, this idea of movie memorabilia was like not a thing, um, as a collector's item. And so no one thought of it as valuable. So things just sort of like sat around. Um, but you did have these people, these sort of like early pioneer prop collectors, right? Often people who are like obsessed with a certain movie or a certain actress or actor who saw that this was something they really wanted to like touch, you know, touch, smell, possess things from, from movies um, or they love costumes or fashion, um, and that's when people started to say like, hmm, if I take a job, you know, like studios are either getting rid of the stuff or then like this famous MGM auction or they're auctioning off all their stuff. Um, I could be involved in this. I could take some pieces, you know, I could buy some pieces. I could just sort of like lift some pieces. Nobody will, nobody cares about it anyway. Um, and you get this whole sort of like world of early prop collecting, which is like, in some ways it's, I wouldn't say it's shady because it's like. Nobody wants, you know, like at this point, the stuff's not valuable, but people are sort of like, what can I take? What can I have? Um, and you have this sort of beginning of this world of prop collecting, which is how we ended up finding, like collectively, we in the, in the world, um, the pairs of ruby slippers that we do have now. So who was Michael Shaw? And how did he get his hands on a pair of the ruby slippers? So he was a former child actor um, who had worked, um, as he says, worked at worked at MGM and sort of fallen in love with Judy Garland and um, with all of that and always sort of knew he wanted to collect. Um, and he had this friend, this, this man named Kent Warner, who had taken a job at the MGM auction, as a lot of people did, specifically to... Um, find the ruby slippers to find these sort of high value items and he found them you know in in the this women's warehouse 
department and puts them in his gym bag as the story goes, you know, and then he says, I found one pair. Right. And who knows? Yeah. How many he actually took uh, and, um, and what they were really going to be for. And, but you know, the, the people who are running auction, like they didn't care. They thought like, here's our pair of ruby slippers. We're going to put them out on this pillow. We have, we have what we need. Um, but, but Kent Warner had more pairs um, and he kept one. He kept this really beautiful, this close-up pair, the witch's pair, um, which is now in the Academy Museum in LA for himself. Um, and somehow or another, a, another pair of his goes to his friend, Michael Shaw. Um, there's a lot of like ambiguity about how Michael Shaw got them. Was it, were they supposed to be for Debbie Reynolds, um, who was trying to start her own Hollywood collection? Were they always going to be for Michael Shaw because they were friends? Um, who knows? Michael Shaw buys them for not very much money and he ends up with this pair and he starts building this like collection of Hollywood stuff. He was very interested in collecting and, and he's sort of like a showman, you know, you can tell that he's like once an actor, always an actor, you know, he has that <laughs> and he loved having these items on display and showing them to whoever, you know, he took it, he had them in a mall and, and people were coming to see them from everywhere. And then he would take them around the country. And he had this something, something called Michael Shaw's Hollywood tour. Um, <laughs> and he's still like, he's still such a, I don't know, like if you, his, he has a lot of Hollywood memorabilia still. He's still, it, it's really important to him. Um, yeah. And so he owned, he became sort of one of the owners of the, one of the original pairs of Ruby Slippers. Um, yeah. So can you tell us about the Judy Garland Museum, uh, why it started and, and who it's run by? Also, um, what kind of traction did it get around the time that the slippers were stolen? Yeah, so the Judy Garland Museum is sort of like a slow, in Grand Rapids, Judy, you know, Judy's born there, has like a pretty good childhood there, but then leaves and she really can't come back. You know, they don't let her come back. Um She's working so hard. She comes once and it's sort of like a little bit awkward. She's like dressed up. It's, you know, like, and people have this nice memory of her being there and everything, but then she really didn't come back. Um, and it did not seem at all, you know, that it was her fault. I think it was really like, she was not allowed. They really controlled where she was and what she was doing. Um, you know, the studio really abused her, but it kind of created this like bad feeling between her and the town, especially it's, this, it's this really like, it's a town where, yeah, it's like, they felt like, Oh, now she's sort of gotten too big for us. She's gone all far away. She's now in Hollywood, you know? And then also like Judy Garland in her life, um, you know, there was always like a lot of, there became like a lot of talk about her, right. You know, like, is she a drug addict? She's addicted to pills. Like she's getting married all these times, you know, and so there was maybe a sense, not by everyone, but by some people that they had this like hero that was like perhaps not worth celebrating or being as proud of as like a different kind of hometown hero. Um, There's a real kind of like split between her um, and, and where she grew up um, and not that much celebration of her for a really long time. But you did have people who were really interested in her and who would do these Judy Garland festivals around her birthday every year. Um, and then they started in, there's a central school building in Grand Rapids and they started this, you know, just like a little exhibition for Judy. Um, and then you have, there is a man in Grand Rapids called John Minor and he's sort of like a, a paper magnate. Um, he, he, they made the, what was it like the wrapping, one of the cereal boxing boxes now I'm blanking on the one, but they did these sort of like, you know, quintessential all these paper products. Um, and he had some cash and he was starting to think of like, um, with the people in Red Rapids who were super interested in Judy, you know, about starting more of a museum. Um, and there was a, another guy, another John, John Kelsch, um, who ran the museum, who they kind of got together and started to think about this as a real museum. They moved into the space they have now, which is, which includes Judy Garland's childhood home. Um, and is really cute. It's like this little, white house um and then there's sort of like uh, there's a children's museum and other stuff and the children's museum i think was a big sell for the town because there were still a lot of people who were like 
why are we having this big thing for Judy Garland? Don't understand. She wasn't there that long. She like kind of left us. She's sort of like unsavory, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they still had these parties. And for a long time, the parties were not. It was a lot of people from outside of town would come, like Hollywood types or like the Munchkins would all come. <laughs> but it still wasn't sort of like part of the fiber of Grand Rapids. Um, but then obviously you have this like really high profile theft in town of this item related to this movie and this person. Um, and then all of a sudden the town is getting a lot more press. The museum is getting crazy press and it's getting it sort of all in connection to each other. Right. So it's like this person, they maybe weren't that associated with. And now it's like, everyone knows there's like CNN stories. There's NBC is covering it. It's a huge deal. Right. The FBI is out there making announcements. Um, so now they're sort of like, really attached to the slippers it's really connected to them um it was something i always thought was really interesting about the story it's like having this kind of complicated legacy and relationship with judy and then all of a sudden now they're really stuck with her and the story forever this is like the thing right um and so yeah that's that's kind of what happened for them so i'd like to discuss the crime uh so what do we know about how it occurred on August 28th, 2005. Um, could you walk us through uh, maybe a timeline uh, based on your interviews with the museum workers? Yeah, um, I can do that. So let's see. Um, it's early in the morning. There's this woman, Kathy Johnson. She comes into work. Um, she usually opens up the museum. Uh, there's broken glass everywhere in the case. Everything's open. She freaks out. Call the direct calls the director. The director comes in. Um, and he sees the same thing and he notices uh, the police come. Everyone's there. It's very chaotic. Um, he notices the one single sequin, right? This one sequin on the floor left. It's like Cinderella's slipper of Ruby Slipper <laughs> world. Um, and shows the police. And basically, it's kind of a mess, right? Because it's a really small town. Museums in general have like very poor security it's sort of like an unkept secret like you could go and take i'm not suggesting anyone steal things from <laughs> you know a, a small museums everywhere but it's like they don't have that much money and things don't really disappear that much and they have to spend money on other things but this was sort of a case where everyone was like oh my god it has to be an inside job because the security is so bad um because they have the they have a camera, but the camera is only a live feed. So if no one's sitting at the desk, there's no record. There's nothing they can look at to see who took the slippers. Um, there's a security door, but the security door has been disabled because kids were coming in and out and like playing. And so they asked the security company to disable the store. Um, so you can walk in. They, th they thought it was still supposed to go on at night, you know, when there wouldn't be kids. But this was apparently a misunderstanding and... Um, so there's that. And then you have a theft that is like sort of the work of work of under a minute. Someone comes in, smashes the case, takes the shoes out the door. Um, and then you have a lot of police who had no idea that there were slippers in Grand Rapids. A lot of them didn't know there was a Judy Garland Museum <laughs> in Grand Rapids. No one knew there was this high value item. Um, and then you have the Michael Shaw part of it where they had said to him, oh, do you want to put it in a, in a special safe? And he said no, because he was just so, he didn't like people handling the shoes. He didn't like people touching the shoes. He didn't want sort of anyone having to touch them all the time when he wasn't around. Um, so you kind of have like a mess of, and a lot of finger pointing because it's like, I don't know, this is this was not a very secured item for it being a very valuable and important item. Um, and a situation where there's not like clue, you know, there's not like, there's no video, there's no, there's nothing to, to be able to figure out what happened. It's summer also. Grand Rapids is a small town and it's very small in the winter, but in the summer you do get a lot of people coming in to stay and enjoy the lakes and stuff. So you have already like extra people. You can't be like, oh, is that one guy that I saw around that wasn't around before or anything? Um, so it was tricky. So what are some of the rumors that start to circulate in Grand Rapids about the theft and who might have taken the slippers? 
So everything, first it's like, oh, John Kalsch, that's the museum director, that he, t- he took them, he's wearing them at home, right? Of course, <laughs> it's like that he has it or that it's an inside job, someone at the museum, because it seems like so obvious. But then you have everything. You have people in Grand Rapids, especially, you know, Michael Shaw is such an outsider to them. So they're like, Michael Shaw did it. He wants the insurance payment. He's like this shady Hollywood guy, never liked him. And look like he's created this sort of problem for us. Um, and then, you know, was a kid's like this idea that it really could have been a prank um, and somebody would have left just taken the slippers, maybe like left them somewhere because they freaked out. Um, they didn't realize what they had taken. They thought it'd be like funny. Um, and then you have this other camp of theories that are starting to be like, the people who really see the slippers as this really valuable item, right? Or not even just valuable, but like full of like magic, you know? And did like, did someone take, did someone try to steal the magic basically? Um, and that comes in too. And it's like pretty early, um, you know, did someone want sort of like the good, good magic from the slippers or like bad magic from the slippers? And then also just like, did they go in a mine pit? Did they, you know, were they burned? Were they, are they, is it another Hollywood person? And they have, because also the costume people, they have like a lot of ill will towards each other. They were like stealing, ripping labels. The, the costume world was sort of like ugly a little bit. Um, and so they're it just in every sort of chunk, there were like people who could find somebody else to point, point fingers at. Um, and people like from the beginning, you know, the museum was just getting calls like, all the time. I found the slippers. I found the slippers. They're here. They're there. They're, they're under the witch's house. I have them. I saw them in <laughs> here. I saw them there. And the police, the same thing. They're starting to get all these, you know, because you do see, you see pairs of ruby slippers around, I guess, like Halloween costumes. Yeah, they're or, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Once you start looking for them, they are definitely yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so how does Grand Rapids investigator uh, Brian Matson get possession finally of the slippers in 2018 uh what what are, what are the sequence of events there so it was like you know it was a really tough case it was a lot of years where they couldn't get anywhere on it for sort of the reasons i described like it was just really hard to get any traction um and there are you know the the police who worked at the beginning did come in come under some fire for you know did they do enough did they take it seriously enough um i don't I don't know. I think probably, I think it was just probably really hard to like get anywhere, but you know, it was like, took a while for people to really be like, wow, this is a huge high value item. This is like kind of embarrassing. We should like step to it. But you know, like, I think that they really did work very hard at the beginning. It was just, it was just difficult. Um, And they had no leads. Then they get this private investigator a few years later and the private investigator also has this like PR guy, this guy Rob Feeney attached. And they're like, we're going to like re-energize this whole thing. This is also like through the museum, not the police. We're going to re-energize this whole thing. We're going to do this big mine pit dive. And we're going to like see if we can find the slippers. We're going to get all this attention. We're going to put out this reward. We're going to have a million dollar reward for the shoes. And they do all this. It doesn't really seem to like amount to much. You know, they don't find them in the mine pit. But they get a call about a year later, two years later, maybe, with somebody saying, is there still a reward? And this is Matson. And Matson has sort of been, comes onto the investigation, like re-energizes it, organizes all the files, takes out that single sequin and gets it analyzed. Like, it's really sort of just like bringing some fresh energy. And I think he also brings a lot of belief, like he really believes he can find these shoes and they're out there, you know, they're not destroyed. Um, and yeah, he gets this call that says like, I know where the slippers are. Is there still a reward? Um, and he didn't even know about the reward. It's a private reward. It's not associated with the police. It's his own, it's his own thing. Um, but he starts kind of digging around, seeing what he can do, seeing, finding out about the reward. And then, you know, they have CNN coming. I think CNN, oh, not CNN. They have the travel channel for this show that they're doing. And they have to like, they want to set a reward too. Matson is sort of like, doesn't want to give up any of his info. At the same time, he's talking to this guy from Florida who knows where the shoes are. Um, and he kind of keeps him on the hook, keeps him on the hook. And then eventually the FBI gets involved because they set up a sting um, to sort of return, orchestrate this return where the people returning the shoes think that 
they are meeting people from the insurance company and getting a reward. And they're really just like meeting some FBI agents and losing their shoes. Um, and so that's the the plan that they settle on. Um, and yeah, Matson kind of stays with it, makes it happen. He has this really good, um, strong contact with the FBI and together they set up the sting and it is successful. Um, and they are able to get the shoes, get the shoes returned. Um, so yeah, some people are like, Oh, it's a reward. I mean, it's who knows exactly sort of what it was, but, um, they do end up getting the slippers back many years later. And are there any leads as to who might've been, uh, holding the slippers this whole time? Uh, do you think we'll ever get any kind of closure (laughs) that we so crave from, uh, this case? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe. So, you know, they know who returned the shoes, right? Um, and that's where it's like, it's not public information. Um, but we had sort of like independently verified that it, that it was a lawyer from Minneapolis who returned the shoes. And through that, it's like, do you, and they obviously know who they were talking to, um, who had called in, you know, as a, a person in Florida who had worked in law enforcement, they have some information about that person. Um, and so then the question is like, well, how long did they have them? What happened all those years? And the FBI, I think really does want to figure out that piece of it. Um, I think they're like committed to that as much as they can be, but it's tricky because the statute of limitations is up for theft. You know, they don't have, they have some legal avenues in terms of like, it's like, what, like, extortion you know if they were trying to get money for the shoes maybe some kind of possession of if they can say that this was like this important cultural item maybe there's an avenue but there's not there's not that much um and so i think it's tricky to to do that but i think they really want to and it's important right to people want to know it's a long time mm-hmm. and they came back like pretty good like they look good and so like you know, where were they holding them? How were they holding them? What what was like the end game? You know, that's because museum theft is like, the river slippers are not like a great thing to steal. Like they're like, I mean, they're great if you like want to have them, I guess, but it's really hard. They're so well known to like resell them is a little bit tricky. Um, and somebody's going to eventually like, you know, find them, you know, when they resurface, you can't like hide what they are. Um, and so the sort of reason is interesting, but like, you know, maybe someone took a chance. There's also the, the idea that there is sort of like an unexplored local connection still, you know, some, some person nearby who just knew, okay, like this museum has no security and they have the ruby slippers. Like, you know, that's sort of probably likely, right? I, I, I think that that's definitely a possibility. Um, but yes, we obviously, I mean, like we were like, oh my God, you want to know the whole thing and you want to know what happened where they were the whole time and you want to know all of it. Um, but I think, I think they may, they may be able to figure it out. Fingers crossed. Um, so at the end of the day, um, we always ask our guest experts this question. Um, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the theft of the ruby red slippers, who or what would that be? Okay, I'm going to give you like a really woo-woo answer, <laughs> um, which which is, okay, so the ruby slippers, there is a theory that they cannot handle being privately owned, um, that they just don't like it. Um, the slippers. The slippers. Because, so there's one, the pair that was privately owned by Kent Warner and is now in the Academy Museum and was owned owned by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, there was this idea that they were cursed. Like they were like this pair in private possession that they were cursed, that like Kent Warner felt they were cursed. People who know the slippers, like they won't touch them. They'll only use like a pole to go near them. You know, this whole thing. Whereas like the pair of the Smithsonian, they're called the people's shoes. They've been in public collections for a long time, um, that they're like happy. You know, like that's where they want to be. Everyone can like see them and experience them. That's like what they want, right? And so, like a lot of questions about. And then there's another pair, also private. Who knows if those people are happy, unhappy? We don't know. But the Michael Shaw's pair, it's like, well, did they need? Did did were they unhappy? And now it sounds like probably in the end, maybe. I mean, maybe Michael Shaw will get them back. 
um, because he, um, if he can sort of like then, you know, with the insurance payout, but are they going to eventually come somewhere public? Right. And like, is that what they wanted all along? Like did the slippers not want to be privately owned and therefore they got stolen (laughs) and then they outed their thieves somehow. Right. They like made the people who had them so greedy that they wanted to come back and like get the money. And then now they're with the FBI. Like now they're in a public, I mean, no one's seeing them yet, but like now they're in this public institution and it's like really the slippers and they're sort of like, curse and or magic that is to blame for the situation. Wow. Uh, Shocking. Shocking. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) Thank you, Arielle, so much for uh, joining us today and talking to us about this very interesting subject. Yeah, of course. Um, It was fun. It's always fun to talk about the slippers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I mean, one little pair of shoes and so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, People love their Manola Blahniks. Forget about those ruby red slippers. <laughs> yeah, Did I, I love say those, right? Ariel's Manola Blahniks. I wouldn't okay. know. <laughs> I like did. Ariel's earlier point where she was like, you know, they were just kind of regular shoes at yes. the time. Yes. Makes like a regular wonder. pump for the time that yeah. had a bunch of. It's like we just like decided to bedazzle our shoes for fun one day. It's like, and then they become right these slippers, these babies. It makes you think about all that, uh, all those jean jackets you bedazzled uh, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. You guys mm-hmm. know, right? The ones you bedazzled as well. Mm-hmm. 
someday they might be found in a box and up for auction and perhaps stolen. Who knows? Who knows? The famous alarmist producer Clayton Early's bedazzled jean jacket <laughs> from his youth. Yes. Great. <laughs> See um, what the market is for that on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so fascinating to hear uh, Ariel tell us all about the the history of the shoe and also how it got into you know the possession of 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 Michael Shaw and eventually the 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 museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what a uh just a journey those shoes have been on. Mm-hmm. It made me think about when she was just describing these huge Hollywood uh, uh studios. studios making these huge films mm-hmm. and all the stuff that they were just producing even for you know like scenes that were never included in the in the film itself like imagine all the stuff they must have had to store. Like, right. That'd be a fun field trip just to find like a big old warehouse full of like old Hollywood stuff to go through. I guess, but it also gives me so much anxiety. Sure. Because if you've ever had to move or <laughs> empty a house, <laughs> yeah. It's it's overwhelming. Just one sure. closet is overwhelming and imagine just True. where like films and films full of props and memorabilia I, I just i can't imagine the amount of stuff we have so much stuff on this stuff. planet i'm sometimes i think about all the stuff we have and i'm mm-hmm. shocked at, at how, how like the planet that is <laughs> yes but how the planet just doesn't like cave in because it's just like Too heavy. so heavy with stuff Too much stuff at what point like it's spread out. Well, it's, we're so making this stuff from the earth. We're not bringing stuff from space and then making it from space material. It's all yeah, of the what earth. What Rebecca's saying <laughs> is right now and in the natural state, the stuff is spread out organically and balanced. But right. when you when you bring it in like all into our house or a studio lot or whatever, a major city or whatever, why doesn't that stuff <laughs> weigh down the crest of the earth yeah. and right. create a big hole to the center of the earth? Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good question. Maybe we could have a scientist <laughs> come on. I'm telling you, the only that. stuff we're creating is ourselves. All these things mm. that we're making is of the earth, but we're the only ones who are actually multiplying, right? I guess you could say we're of the oh, earth that's too, true. right? That's true. We're of but the wait, earth, but, but no, wait, you're right. We are because, making more of us. But wait, but like, hang on, hang on. Sorry, but, uh-huh. <laughs> that's true. We do grow. <laughs> but the reason we grow is because we eat other stuff. Mm. But that, yeah, but we're growing ourselves and ourselves. You can't grow, <laughs> you can't grow slippers and Ruby, you know, like slippers we make, that's we mine true. things from the earth. Uh, I wonder if we've gone off on a tangent. Yeah, I wonder. I think we have. Um, <laughs> is there always the same amount of stuff on earth or is it getting bigger? That's my big question mm-hmm. from this podcast, which is somehow about the missing Ruby red slippers from the Wizard yeah. of Oz. Well, what, what do you guys think about Ariel's shocking answer to who she thought was to blame? I gave it I a 10 it. out of 10. Wow. I, me too. I thought I just, as I said, I think it's really kind of comforting to know that the shoes, like Judy Garland herself, really loved an audience. So they need to be seen and experienced because that's where her magic lies. That's really beautiful. (laughs) It really is. To Mm -hmm. me, I thought it was an excellent broader point about private ownership in general. Mm -hmm. How can you, like, say a beautiful piece of artwork, right? Sure. Does, does that belong in one guy's living room so that like his cousin Ted or like well, per, it depends how you know many people that? that that guy is bringing into his house? Maybe it's a lot of people. And you know, it's not a lot of people. Sure. You know what I mean? It just made me think broadly about private ownership. <laughs> what? Or like a private, you know, like a beautiful beachfront. Who exactly? Or a river? My beachfront. <laughs> Or a river yes. that you're just like happens to go through your backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all got to share this space and share That's our calm. things and share our things. But we are all, all we all should have one private bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Everything Each. should Not be shared. shared but we should but... all have our own bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should. Everyone should I, get I their like own bathroom. S- I would like to throw in a bed as well. We should just share like a, at least four walls. At okay. least four walls. Share ruby red slippers, but have your own private bathroom and bedroom mm-hmm. and bedroom with a bed. That's okay. all. That's all I ask for. <laughs> you know, so you can have like quiet time when you want to mm-hmm. just be alone. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much to Ariel for uh, 
giving us so much clarity on this, uh, you know. She was very knowledgeable yeah. in this. In just this, amazing how knowledgeable she, lot of, she was. I mean, her synopsis of, of uh, Judy Garland's childhood was incredible. She, I know. She knows a lot about that woman. I would like to point out something mm-hmm. that happened. So when we were doing the original episode, I was talking to you guys about how transformative that moment of her coming out of the house and coming into color was. Yes. And I was met with kind of like crickets from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I, oh, okay. I said it's still pretty amazing, you guys. And I was like, maybe I'm alone on this. It's pretty oh, quiet. Oh, yes, now yeah. I know the. No, but I, I do think about. it's I. I think it's really amazing too for her to say that back when it aired, people in the theater would mm-hmm. stand up and give that Clap. moment a standing yeah. ovation yeah. because it is transformative. I mean, yeah. I, I think we for, we take it for granted because, like, I guess we have totally. like experience, maybe like. Jurassic Park, right? Like, remember when you saw it as a child yeah. and you're like, oh my God, they found real dinosaurs. It seems so real. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we don't have, we're so used to like technologically advanced stuff that yeah. like it's lost in us, like the impact of going from black and white when that's all you're used to. Right. And then going to color and seeing someone wearing these iconic ruby red slippers. Yeah. I also think that you probably, um, it's, it's possible that you, lived a past life where you mm. experienced um the wizard of oz at, maybe i was when it, it came out maybe i lived in munchkin town maybe i was one <laughs> maybe, of the actors yeah. maybe yeah you don't know you don't know that's the i thing. don't know no. also it makes you realize you know the the yellow brick road the ruby red slippers the uh tin man it's all, they're all colors. They were very color oriented mm, yeah. because of this technicolor yeah. advancement. Now, Clayton, you've, you were validated by Ariel. Now, what was, uh, who, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail? And do we want to change that? So we threw the Judy Garland Museum itself in the jail, basically mm. for its lack security protocols, mm-hmm. which I definitely think Ariel touched on big time. Um, and then we gave the big slap to laissez-faire safety measures just generally. Mm. I think that we should change it. I think okay. that we should say, uh, you know, exactly About what the theory. Ariel said. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because she kind of encapsulated a few ideas. One that they were cursed, that they didn't be when they were privately owned, they became cursed, mm-hmm. and or the slippers themselves. May, perhaps it's um, how do we human encapsulate na- that? Yeah, wanting an audience. Uh, I do you blame? Because yeah, do you blame the slippers themselves? It's it maybe you blame the slippers' desire to to want an audience to need an audience. Mm-hmm. The slippers desire for an audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we I mean, okay. That we could can, be the spirit of Judy Garland too, yeah. living on in the shoes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that encapsulates it. Um okay, I'm gonna call it the slippers desire for an audience, aka Judy Garland living in the shoes. <laughs> Wait, you threw that in there at the last minute. What? Are we saying the that the shoes of are Judy ha- Garland. So you're saying the shoes are the haunted? Sho- no, the, yeah, like okay. Ariel said, it's a curse. Right. You're going to the alarmist jail. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> it's almost like we're now punishing the shoes. Yeah, it is a <laughs> it little. Does feel like that. <laughs> now that you say it out loud, I'm like, wait, like are that. we? Punishing I think it's the point she was <laughs> no. making was more about people and and trying to take advantage of yeah. uh, right. the shoe. It's, yeah, the so shoe. it's possession. Shaw, it's like possessions. Uh huh. maybe so. Okay, so maybe we need to readdress this. Uh, our <laughs> human nature's uh, desire to possess objects. Okay. We can go back to uh, people getting handsy. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what it is. Yes. Right? That's yes. kind of what it is. Yes. Human human people getting handsy. You're going with f- with, with um, humans getting handsy. With hu- humans, yeah. humans with, getting with handsy with icons. Shoes. Yeah, with memorabilia. Yeah. And just objects. Important objects. Humans getting handsy with objects and icons, memorabilia. You're going back to the alarmist jail. Okay, that's better. And for so. the mm-hmm. for the for the new alarmy members who are listening to this for the first time, humans getting handsy is one of the things we've put on the board from the past. I believe it started with um, 
the New York Bill de Blasio uh, oh. Groundhog Day yeah. episode. Yes. <laughs> are, are wanting to touch the groundhog and just feeling like he needed to carry so, um, the poor groundhog. Right. And if you're new to the podcast, like we do things like this uh, pretty, pretty much a lot. We make up <laughs> things. If we can't, if we can't figure out what to put in the jail, we'll just kind of mm. make up a Speak bunch of yourself, words. Speak for yourself, Chris. Everything <laughs> is tried and there. true here. Um, well, thank you again to Ariel. Uh, and I want to put out, uh, uh, a call for, for the alarmy to please write in and tell us what has been recently alarming you. Uh, we're going to do a, a special mini alarms episode with uh, alarmy alarms. Alarmy alarms. We'll <laughs> Alarm, call it that. Yeah, we'll call it the alarmy alarms. And we've we've gotten a few uh, great emails, um, but we we would like more. So please uh, send us an email, and you can write to us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail dot com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's really important. We haven't gotten any reviews uh, in the in the past few weeks, and that does not help our growth. And if we want to continue to make uh, episodes. We really need your help. So if you haven't already done so, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing Penn State's Jerry Sandusky scandal. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 